Our first scripture reading is from Psalm 12. Psalm 12. Read the whole psalm. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of men. Everyone utters lies to his neighbour. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. And it's particularly this uh, next verse or the next uh, couple of verses that uh, relate to the sermon this afternoon. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of men. Of men. Then would you also please turn to Acts chapter 24. I'll read verses 10 to 21. The text for the sermon is verses 14 to 16. And then after that I'll read from the Westminster Confession. Acts 24, from verse 10. And uh, here the Apostle Paul is before Governor Felix, making a defence before him. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defence. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue, synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Now our text through to verse 16. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man." Now, after several years, I came to bring arms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you, and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this, one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. 
And then in the Westminster Confession, we will be looking at this uh, passage uh, in Acts as uh, we also consider what is in the Westminster Confession, chapter 14 and article 2. This is in a uh, chapter that deals with saving faith. And the Westminster Confession says regarding that faith, By this faith a Christian believeth to be true, whatsoever is revealed in the word, for the authority of God himself speaking therein, and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, will you use your word to remind us of our foundations, how your word itself is our firm foundation because it is about and from the Lord Jesus Christ, a foundation, the rock upon whom we are to build our lives. Father, we pray that you would help us to listen with that in mind, that we are hearing that word which is, your, which is the foundation for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, as we read, the Apostle Paul was accused of uh, perverting the truth of the Scriptures, actually, of perverting the Old Testament Scriptures. But the text tells us that part of his answer to this accusation, this false charge that was presented before Governor Felix, um, pre uh, presented by uh, Tertullus, a man who has, uh, was representing the Jewish leaders, the apostle replies that he had been simply serving God and that part of the way in which he did that involved believing everything that is in accordance with the law and the prophets. We find somewhat similar language in the Westminster Confession, chapter 14, article 2, which tells us that a Christian should know and believe whatsoever is revealed in the word. And for that matter, we could turn to Lord's Day 7, another one of our confessions, question answer 21 and 22, where we read that a Christian must believe everything that God promises in the gospel. Now, I don't know about uh, you, but uh, you read these words, everything, whatsoever, and that sounds at first, at first like a, a rather tall order to believe everything. And I know that when I was in school, if you had uh, uh, anyone there uh, who claimed that they were some kind of expert or authority on a particular subject, that they had all the answers, the reaction from the other kids was usually not terribly positive. In fact, uh, they used to chant, chant, they'd gather around in a circle uh, around the person who made this claim and start, start chanting, uh, no, it all, nothing, or something of those, that kind. So it's a kind of a, an insult and a reaction to people who seem to be claiming to know everything. 
So if we do regard people in that way as arrogant know-it-all-nothings when they claim to know everything, how is it that we can be told that we have to know and believe everything in the Old Testament, in the Law and the Prophets, or everything in the Gospel, or everything in God's Word, however you want to say it? Well, we look at that under three headings. First of all, everything versus some things. Secondly, everything in the Gospel. And thirdly, everything with a blameless conscience. So everything as opposed to some things, everything in the gospel, and everything with a blameless conscience. And as we look first then at everything as opposed to some things, uh, the reason why this seems like an arrogant claim is because in order to believe everything, presumably one would have to know everything. To know everything in the Bible... Uh, to know it all exhaustively and comprehensively, and who can claim that they do that? In fact, if you did claim it, if it were possible for, say, the Apostle Paul or for any other mere human being to say that they were capable of knowing everything in the Bible, then you might think then that the Bible is, after all, not so terribly deep, that it has a, a, a limited enough scope that it's possible for anyone, or not perhaps anyone, but at least certain people, to know everything in it. In much the same way, for example, as a child can learn fairly exhaustively their times tables in school, assuming that that's still taught in schools these days, that they can learn their times tables. It's a limited scope, it's a small area of knowledge, and it's possible to learn it completely. So is the Bible in that category that it's so easy, not so deep, that we can actually learn it in that fashion. Well, I think we all know from our own experience what Psalm 139 verse 6 and also verses 17 and 18 teaches, that such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is too high, I cannot attain to it. And we could say that of the Scriptures as a whole. But if we cannot attain to it, can we claim to have faith? Because this chapter in the Westminster, which is a chapter about saving faith, it says that by faith a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Bible. So if we don't know absolutely everything in the Bible, how can we claim to have true saving faith? Well, in answer to that, I would suggest that we consider for a moment what the confessions and what the Apostle Paul in Acts 24, verse 14, what they're actually contrasting here. Are they contrasting, on the one hand, a 100% comprehensive knowledge of the Bible over against an incomplete knowledge and a, a certain level of ignorance? But if that's the case, then who of us here could claim to have a true saving faith, if that's what it takes? Because we've all got ignorance. Or, and this is the thing I would like to say is the case here, is it a contrast between a genuine conviction that the Bible is wholly God's word and therefore it is wholly true over against the view that the Bible is some kind of mixture of the word of God and the word of man and therefore it is only partly true and partly wrong or at least suspect because part of it comes only from man. 
if I can take an illustration of this, make an illustration of this, if you hear a sermon that you don't fully understand, there's a big difference between saying, look, I'm not saying anything against the preacher and I'm not saying that he's teaching error or anything, but I just didn't follow everything he said. There's a difference between that and saying, yeah, I, I heard what he, said, what he said, I understood it all and I have to tell you part of it I agreed with, but the other part I totally reject. I trust you can see the difference between those two approaches or uh, comments. So here we have this, of course, I should add to to this that uh, preachers may err, but the point is that God's word does not. So the question is not whether you understand every word in God's word, but whether you believe that the whole Bible is God's word in its entirety and therefore every word in it is pure as we read in the psalm, pure, inspired and true, or whether you do not believe that. And if you do not believe that, then that is tantamount to calling God either a liar or someone who makes mistakes or someone who is helpless to prevent others who make mistakes from putting them into his Bible. And make no mistake about it, there are many, even those within Reformed churches around the world, and I have met some of them, those who say, indeed, that the Bible is a mixture of God's word and man's word. And one of the most common areas where I find this kind of argument is in the debate between creation and evolution, theistic evolution especially, where it appears that uh, there are those who want to dismiss anything that the Bible said or any interpretation of the Bible that goes against what the majority of scientists today appear to be saying. They want, they want to uh, be, uh, be free to uh, change th uh, their view or what's uh, true in those areas, but they do not necessarily want to accuse God of making a mistake in his interpretation of his creative work. They just want to say, well, God doesn't make mistakes. God knows exactly the way it happened, but these words in, say, Genesis aren't really from God. They're a human observation or a human intrusion. And again, I've met people like that. This is an example of the kind of thing we're talking about. Of course, then you do have the problem of how you're going to deal with these statements in Scripture that say that every word, not just the word as a whole, but if you noticed it as we read that psalm earlier, it, the words of God are pure. Even the individual words are exactly what he wants them to be. And there is this other problem too, that if you put yourself in that position, who becomes the judge of which words in the Bible are the true ones from God and which words in the Bible are the ones that humans, fallible humans, have intruded? then man becomes the judge of what is the true word of God within the Bible and that which is not. And that is a position that man is never given. And I hope you can see from this, this connection between the doctrine of God and what we have to say about God and what we say about the doctrine of Scripture, about his word. Those two things are tied up and that is why what we say about Scripture has such a bearing on true, whether we have true and saving faith or not because it's so tied up with the doctrine of God in whom we have faith. Uh, one final comment about this aspect of the text. We say that every word in the law and prophets, 
with the Apostle Paul, we believe it all. We say the whole Bible is to be accepted as God's word. But of course, each of those words has to be taken in context. In context, for example, God's word records the devil's words in Genesis 3 verse 4. But the devil's words, for example, when he said, at the day you eat of the fruit, you surely will not die, the devil's words were false. But nevertheless, they are truly and accurately recorded in the scripture. The scripture is true in all it says, including when it is giving details of someone else's error. This is the message then that the Apostle Paul was giving before Felix in his defence in answer to the uh, charges of the attorney Tertullus representing the Jewish leaders. They said Paul is a ringleader of a sect that stirs up trouble contrary to the law and the prophets. And the Apostle Paul replies to that, no, like all true believers, I believe everything in the law and the prophets. And in fact, if anything, the apostle was on trial precisely because he truly believed everything in the law and the prophets and his opponents only had some kind of technical belief in it, but they didn't really believe it in the way that they should. Well, this um, point about believing everything in the Bible is also closely connected in the text as well as in our confessions with believing everything in the gospel. So believing everything in God's word embraces believing everything, or perhaps it's even just another way of saying believing everything in the gospel. I quoted before from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 7, question answer 22. What then must a Christian believe? Everything God promises in the gospel. The gospel must be brought into it because, as the Westminster Confession says, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ. And that involves the gospel. So you certainly can't exclude that. We look at this in our second point, everything in the gospel. Look at it this way. You, have, uh, you may have noticed with small children, they often like to... Uh, jump into the arms of their parents. Um, sometimes they jump when you're not ready. Sometimes they jump when you're not even looking, and uh, that can have unfortunate consequences. But they, that's, that's something they learn to do. They learn to trust. They learn certain truths about their parents. And having learned those things, they're then able to take that leap uh, with trust and to uh, uh, rest upon their parents in that way. So in order to make those kind of jumps, uh, you need to know something about the people to whom you're jumping. You need to learn that you can trust them. You need to have some confidence that they'll catch you. And so it is also with the Lord Jesus Christ, we need, in order to rest upon him, as to use that language of the Westminster, in order to rest upon you, him, you need to know about him. You need to know who he is, and you need to know about his works so that in that way you also know what it is that you are resting upon him for. So as we read here in the Westminster Confession, we are to believe in his work of justification, sanctification, 
and eternal life. That's also gospel truth. We are to rest upon him for those things. So when we uh, jump into his arms, trusting that he will catch us, we are jumping in that trust that he will do those things for us, that he will justify us and sanctify us and give us eternal life. And to do that, we need to know quite a lot of truth, as it's explained in the Bible, throughout the Bible, the whole counsel of God, what it teaches about Jesus Christ, his person and works, so that we then know to rest on him specifically for those things, all of which is gospel truth. See how the Apostle Paul, he says it in a, in a somewhat different way, but nevertheless, a way that relates to the gospel, when he explains his believing of everything in terms of having the Christian hope, the hope in God for the resurrection from the dead, both of the righteous and the wicked, verse 15. In other words, the Apostle Paul believes the gospel and therefore he has hope. He believes the gospel because he believes everything in the law and the prophets and they speak of these truths as well, the whole counsel of God. And even the apostle says, even those who are opposing him, at least in a technical and outward way, even they gave assent to those teachings as well. Though without a sincere and heartfelt conviction in these things, in this Christian hope, the faith that one has isn't a true and saving faith. One of the problems with the view that only some of the Bible is from God is that you can no longer be sure then that the heart of the gospel is true either. There are, for example, those who want to deny, as I mentioned before, special creation, but they still want to be able to accept the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the believer. But the question is, how can someone who says that ignorant ancient people wrote certain parts of the Bible that appear to talk about a literal creation, how can that person then turn around and refute another person who says ignorant and superstitious ancient people wrote the parts of the Bible that talk about the resurrection from the dead. And though it is not quite in the same category, there is nevertheless a parallel between that dilemma and saying that we have to believe the gospel only in a very narrow sense. That all we have to believe, that all God wants us to believe, is that Jesus saves or maybe to believe just the Apostles' Creed and the rest of it doesn't matter. Those who have that very minimalistic view of what we have to believe. But they would say, well, the rest of the doctrine, it's okay, it's there, but you don't really need to know it and you don't really need to believe it as long as you believe these few fundamental truths. But the, the parallel and the dilemma is that then who decides which doctrines are irrelevant, more or less, and which doctrines are essential? Who decides how to interpret the statements in the Apostles' Creed if you do not bring in the whole counsel of God? And that is why going back to Lord's Day 7, again, I know we've been looking at the Westminster, but it's okay to bring in other confessions as well. Lord's Day 7, question 22. When it talks about everything in the gospel that a Christian must believe, it speaks of those truths as summarised in the Apostles' Creed and it does that rather than saying that the gospel is completely and exhaustively covered in the Apostles' Creed. And in fact, it then goes on in the Heidelberg to 
explain bringing in more and more of the counsel of God, a huge amount actually, what the Apostles' Creed actually means and what we understand by it as Reformed churches. True, we must accept, receive and rest upon Christ alone. Westminster 14, 2. But what we rest upon him for, justification, sanctification, eternal life and a whole lot more, involves a lot more doctrine than just a statement, Jesus saves. And we need the whole Bible to explain that. This no creed but Christ approach, which many these days take, is actually a pernicious error and one that is infecting many churches around the world, including many Reformed churches. And often the first sign of it, the first sign uh, is ignoring uh, the broader confessional uh, statements and trying to restrict what we have to focus on to simply those truths expressed in the Apostles' Creed in the way that they're stated there. That's often the first sign of a minimalistic approach that not only wants to ignore the rest of confessional teaching, but isn't actually interested in exploring the rest of the doctrine in the Bible. It would be one thing if someone said, I'm not interested in the confessions, but they nevertheless really got stuck into the scriptures and learned everything they could from God's word. That would be one thing. But very often what we find is people who don't want to go into doctrine in the broader extent uh, aren't interested in doing that either in the scripture or in the confessions. And so they want something more minimalistic and uh, just leave it at that. They can't be bothered studying the whole counsel of God. This uh, everything of God's word, and here's another way in, in which, another thing that shows us that uh, what a, um, a wrong-headed approach it is to try and minimalize uh, what we are to understand and believe from God's word. It's also seen in another area. So we've seen that the gospel is very much tied up with that believing everything, but so too is the matter of sanctification. The everything of God's word not only covers the gospel in that broad sense, all the doctrines of the scripture that feed into it, and in one way or another, they all do. And all those doctrines that the gospel ties together throughout the Bible, but it also includes sanctification, as the Westminster Confession says here. And when you talk about sanctification, that means uh, not only an understanding of God's law, that's another whole part of the, the whole counsel of God, it also includes Christ's perfect sanctified life, his obedience to his Father's will, which is counted as our obedience as part of our salvation. And then it also includes a third aspect, that holy living that we engage in with God's help out of gratitude for the saving work and in response to God's word. And so just in those three things, again, you have a whole other area of the whole counsel of God that we need to know about if we want to understand these things. We look at this in our third and final point, everything with a blameless conscience. And we see this in the text where the apostle talks about how he is serving God in verse 14. And if you want to serve God, you, you obey him. That's part of it. If you want to obey him, you have to know a whole lot of the counsel of God as to what he calls on you to do, to obey. So obeying him is one part of it. 
seeking his glory, seeking to be a good witness to him. All these aspects of serving God are carried out by godly living. The apostle also speaks of believing everything in the word and hoping in the resurrection. And then he says, in view of this, I do my best to maintain also a clear or blameless conscience before God and before men. Verse 16. And that's only possible as well by living a sanctified life. How are you going to be a good witness to others if you don't? And by the way, the word blameless doesn't mean you have to be perfect in yourselves or we'd all be in big trouble. The word blameless in this case means that uh, though we sin, uh, we are not Uh, We don't totally stumble. That's the idea of it in this particular word. God keeps us from that. Uh, We can come at this issue from so many different angles. Here's one. Faith believes everything in the law and the prophets, and the law and the prophets certainly speak of sanctification. The law tells us of our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. It then tells us, the way we're to live, the rule of gratitude, to show thankfulness for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophets, on the other hand, promise a time when God's people would be made righteous by the suffering servant. The law and the prophets each bring the gospel in their own way, and we respond to each one in its own way. As the Westminster says, we act differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains and we do that uh, but either way whichever way we're reacting to this passage or that in every case there is a response called for there's an action a way of thinking a way of speaking a way of living a way of obedience a way of taking seriously God's warnings a way of trusting God's promises and all of that underlain by resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ as our rock and foundation. Another angle on that, another way of coming at this, is to consider the very definition of faith. And again, I'll I'll go to Lord's Day 7 because I think it it has such a neat description of uh, faith there and it has those three elements. It talks about knowledge as we're talking about here in Acts and also in the Westminster knowledge or believing whatsoever is revealed in the word. So that's the knowledge aspect. It also talks about assurance based upon those promises that are centered upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then a third element is conviction, which involves the application of all of these things to ourselves, a real genuine application with a real commitment of the heart. In fact, uh, I often prefer to use the word commitment to explain that word conviction here. To make it clear that when the Heidelberg talks about conviction, what it's talking about is not some mere assent, technical outward assent to certain propositions that we find in the Bible, but it's talking about a wholehearted embracing, a real deep conviction, a real deep commitment to the truth of the scripture in all its different aspects. And that was the problem with Paul's opponents. They assented to the true doctrines, like the sovereignty of God and the resurrection from the dead. 
but they didn't embrace those truths with the heart because if they had, they would have seen how all of that came together in the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is no wonder then that the Apostle James says that faith without works is dead. James 2 verse 26. Without works, it's dead. Sanctification, another whole area of the everything that we are called upon to know and believe. Faith without conviction, faith without commitment is not true saving faith. Justification without sanctification is an oxymoron. Faith believes everything God says about living the blameless way and then it seeks with God's help to live in just that way. Faith believes everything the Word says about the Gospel. Faith believes everything the Word says, full stop. Amen.